0: Welcome to Good Business, this is Ryan Everton, and today I'm speaking with Jonathan Parrott, Sustainability Advisor for Prince Charles in Air New Zealand. Hi Jonathan, it's great Hi. to have you here. Yeah,
1: nice to be here. Um,
0: we are drinking out of disposables, which isn't ideal. I know, we've
1: had our morning share of guilt already, which I know. is a bad way do to you, start.
0: Do you go through a lot of guilt?
1: Uh, some guilt, mostly associated with flying. I don't... Usually oh, really? Drink coffee out of disposable cups. Yeah. Because um, obviously, when I'm at home, I've got better ways of doing that. But if I'm in a, uh, another country and yep. you offer me a coffee in the morning, yeah, yep. sure, of course. I'm not going to say, no, I'm sorry, I have such an objection <laughs> to plastic cups. But uh, we all know this stuff does count. We're going to have to do something about it.
0: Yeah. And uh, what, have you seen processes go towards it? What are, yeah, no, yep. there
1: is a huge amount of innovation now yep. going into working out all of these different plastic problems that we're dealing with different yep. types of plastic waste and some are easy to deal with to be honest and can yep. just be banned plastic straws mm-hmm. plastic cutlery all that kind of stuff disposables do you yeah, think any disposables yep. governments will meet need to move now much more clearly towards outright bans there's yep. no other way of doing it really it just has to happen. and do
0: you think do you think that's going to be a long process or a short no, process I think some of it will move fast
1: yeah i think people now that they've kind of got their heads around what has happened as a consequence of nearly 30 years Uh of the deployment of plastic throughout the economy in every way but particularly use of plastic for packaging I think they've they've come to the conclusion this is just insane you know we know we get value out of plastic and plastic products and plastic packaging but the price of that value shouldn't be to destroy the world's oceans yeah
0: And who do you think are going to be the fastest movers towards this? You know, like Trump's obviously gone and said, we're not going to do anything towards it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So is that a launch? We don't
1: look to the US for any (laughs) any kind of leadership today in this space. Well, other than leadership in the insanity stakes, but that's a bit different. Um, I think Europe's going to move really fast. And you can see it now, different countries introducing different measures, some going very quickly towards bans or what are called extended producer responsibility type levies on different uh, packaging types and formats. Um, I think Southeast Asia will move much faster than people imagine. It's the source of a lot of the problem. And the people of Southeast Asia are victims of a lot of the problem. Uh And much of the plastic going into the oceans arises in that part of the world. So there's a big new push going on. There's an ASEAN summit, as as you know, going on uh, shortly in Singapore. And for the first time ever, this issue is... On the main agenda, yep. for ASEAN leaders to deal with.
0: Do you feel like it's a never-ending problem, though? You know, there's a, the movements happened in Australia with war on waste, but the issue is, and I, you know, I've had a bunch of people come to me recently saying everyone's changed to compostable bags that can't be composted.
1: <laughs> well, not knowing quite what. Um, biodegradable myth you're dealing with here in Australia, I can only only sympathize with that because we've been through a lot of what looked like solutions and then they turn out not to be solutions. They turn out in some cases to actually be worse than the original problem. So I think there is a risk that people get really put off by that just very dispirited at the idea that every time they try and do something more responsible, yep. it turns out that it hasn't made much of a difference at all. Recycling, either. for example, yeah, you know, absolutely. like the amount of people
0: who've come up to me recently saying, I can't believe it, like all my wasted time recycling.
1: Well, again, I depending <laughs> which city we're talking yeah, about, touché. I very much hope that it hasn't completely been wasted time because yep. actually the, the truth is that if you've got cities that are doing really good strategic recycling and waste repurposing, so not just recycling but using recyclates effectively, um, we can reduce the problem by a very significant percent. I mean, you look at the successful capitals in Europe that have been doing this now, and they're up to 85%, 90% recycling. I mean, really good. And people feel that's part of their civic responsibility. So when you get the scheme set up and people can see the difference it makes, and it impacts on the rates they pay yep. as uh, citizens of that city, mm-hmm. then all of that comes together and so, produces a better outcome.
0: Which comes back to you, I guess. Do you think it's a top-down political decision, or does companies creating valuable products in the marketplace change it?
1: It is a bit of both. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if, I wish it was that simple, because then, then we'd have a... <laughs> or is it grassroots
0: forcing the movement at the back end, you know? If you, you look know? at
1: the history of environmental campaigning, it is true that the consumer or the citizen, as I like to think of us, rather than consumers have been effective yep. in getting change at certain points. But in reality, the biggest driver of change behavior is legislation and regulation. So take Always. plastic straws, for instance. All the good guys now yep. will move to ban the use of plastic straws. Okay, yep. All the not-such-good guys, or all the guys who don't even know what the hell this is all about. Yeah. So every corner store... In the country, every small retailer will, yep. won't will be part of this debate, don't forget. This is yep. going on in a very rarefied kind of atmosphere here. Yep. Most of them don't even know what this is about, let alone how plastic straws can bugger up the oceans. No. How would they know that? So you have to have completely clear political leadership that says, right, we get the problem. It's severe. Mm-hmm. There are things that we can do within a defined period of time, so give a two-, three-year warning. Yep. But at the end of that time, no plastic straws will be sold in any outlet In Australia, and then you've got a solution that applies to everybody—not just the ones who want to do the right thing, but the ones who don't care or are ignorant.
0: When do you think change? When do you think this change is happening? I guess part of what we want to talk about is does change happen in two fifty, and how do you see it happening in two fifty? Do you think this is happening next ten years? We've got no straws anywhere. (laughs) Um, You know, coffee cups. It's probably been twenty, almost fifteen, at least years that people started talking. It hasn't really changed. Some people bought reusable cups and left them in their cupboard. Um,
1: We've got some interesting stuff going on around that now in Europe. And some of the big um, coffee chains, you know, uh, Starbucks and Costa and all the rest, of I'm sure they're just as prevalent here um, in Australia as they are in my country, um, are moving to see what they can do. So one in particular has now decided to reduce the price of the average uh, cup of coffee, whether it's a flat white or a cappuccino, whatever it might be, by 25p, yep. people bring their own coffee cup, yep. their own coffee mug, as it were. And 25p, okay, if, you, if you're if you one of these people who, just as a matter of habit now, buy a coffee on the way to work every yep. morning, it's suddenly
0: $3,000 a year in coffee.
1: Well, that's the point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, let's yeah. compute that one. Yeah. What's the saving on your total coffee bill? Yeah. By making an investment in a reusable coffee container, which actually has a nicer feel to it as well let's be honest coffee cups in terms of the feel on your lips and all the rest Mm -hmm. its not particularly nice I I don't really like that aesthetic anyway Uh so get your reusable container and hey presto you've made a saving and for those coffee chains that are now making these kind of offers I think they'll see a really strong consumer response it's interesting in in
0: Australia there's now 3,000 cafes that have signed up to responsible cafes right which is essentially a movement towards cafes giving discounts on coffee. Oh, they are doing that, right, yeah. The issue that I've found in the marketplace is a lot of them just put it up, but they never did give the discount. What? Yeah, <laughs> one. <laughs> or they made a discount five cents. There was no standard on what that discount should be. Mm. Um,
1: but that's, you see, that's just... Plain. And there's still issues
0: in that marketplace from a dirty cup coming in, so the cost is actually more by that point to the coffee cafe once they wash that cup that can
1: board. be. Yeah. 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 No, it's not. It's not as. But easy I don't. As I don't
0: want to spend sort of discussion talking about <laughs>
1: cups. <but laughs> <Good>. The <laughs>
0: aviation you've said as you feels like a. And you're part of obviously in New Zealand sustainability board. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, some people say it's one of the worst industries in the world. Or, you know, towards the environment. And in your opinion, do you <laughs> think that industry is going to change? And have you felt like you've made change? Uh, moving, you know, in the past, you know, what is it, four or five years now on the With board? Air New Zealand. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, no, there, there's been a really good process, and and I have to say, you know, for those airlines that are really focused now on their carbon footprint and what they need to do about total emissions yep. from aviation, we're beginning to see some very progressive positions indeed, and Air New Zealand is definitely one of those companies. It's in, not in any way. Denying the scale of the problem, yeah. it puts that out there all yeah, the time yeah. in its reports and in the speeches by its chief executive. So they're saying, "Look, this is for real, and you're part of it." Yeah. Because every time you get on one of our planes, you know yeah. we're not flying the planes because we like flying the planes. We fly on the, we fly the planes because you're on them. Yeah. So this has to be giving a people what they want. Giving people <laughs> what they want, basically. <laughs> yeah. So it has to be a set of interventions which can uh, significantly reduce the total. Footprint of aviation at the moment it's probably about two point five to three percent of yep. total global greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, okay. so it's it's big. Yeah, um, it's not as big as many other things that people often ignore. For instance, yep. so just food and farming is fourteen point five percent. Yeah, the, it's crazy. Yeah, you know all this kind of stuff. Yeah, so yeah. there are lots of things that have to be taken into account here. And when I think about the the kind of citizen end of this what is the one thing that huge numbers of people would really not want to give up if they were given a choice and the chance to fly and to have access to other countries other places in your own country to yeah. be able to do this for work for recreation for family for friends whatever for podcast it might be. Absolutely, I'm not just here in <laughs> yeah, Australia no, for this. Okay, Ryan. Just in case you thought I jumped on a yep. plane to do a podcast with you for now, just just yep. don't ramp my guilt up too much. Okay? No, no, I won't. Um, <laughs> And I think that this is now a very dynamic scene. There's a lot of international regulation. In New
0: Zealand driving a lot of the movement in terms of innovation towards supporting sustainability. Is there any other airlines doing quite as much? There
1: are are other good airlines. uh, Some of them are European. I saw the other day that United Airlines, the American airline, had been voted sustainable airline of the year. I have to admit, I find that completely mind-boggling, and it's yeah. really, they certainly don't deserve that accolade. But to have any U.S. airline out there actually saying it cares about these things is pretty yeah. good, frankly. Touché. Because they yeah. have not really been focused on this at all. Middle East Airlines, and a nightmare.
0: Why do you feel America's not focused on it at all, at all? Especially when, is it because of industry who sort of drove the disposable movement or something at some point and the oil movement in some ways? I
1: think it's fair to say that the U.S. aviation industry has always been pretty resistant to any way of improving the industry. They were the last to get on board with real customer quality, last to get on board. with. But the they're mission. the
0: biggest in the industry so. Well, they are huge. Yep. They are enormous. Yep. <laughs>
1: I mean that Some of these Chinese airlines, of course, are catching up quite yep. quickly. But uh, they are enormously important. So we can't do without them. So there's definitely a, a, what I would call a cohort of leading airlines that yep. are now showing the way here. And what that means on carbon is three things. One, they have to get as efficient as they possibly can for every passenger kilometer yep. flown or freight mile, freight kilometer flown, you just have to get your efficiency story, and that means newer planes managed really efficiently and flown really efficiently. Because yep. part of the problem is that air traffic control systems are really bad, and there's a lot of wastage in terms of the uh, takeoff and landing stuff. So and that's ha- number one, yeah. Number two is they have to investigate alternative fuels. Yep. And people are now beginning to look at um, biofuels as a part contributor to the uh, so, to the solutions. And three, they have to be able to engage with their own customers. So offsetting is going to become a really important part of the deal. And some people don't like that, yep. but they're just going to have to bite their tongues because it is the only way, when you look at the technologies available to aviation, it's the only way in the next 20 years that we can make a really significant difference.
0: Those three things. Yeah. the Biofuels is an interesting one on that topic, though, isn't it? Because everyone was talking about biofuels, like bio cups at some point. But it's almost, it yeah. becomes less, if, you know, by the time you grow all the food.
1: Yeah, no, look, I'm much more sceptical yeah. about a big contribution. So
0: where do you see fuels. it going and how fast do you see it changing in the next 10, 20, 30?
1: Well, all of these timetables that we've worked to in the past, they all now are getting truncated. They're shortening all the time. So let me give you one example. Yeah, because of yep. scalability, technology breakthroughs. Yeah. So just think about renewable energy. Think about solar technologies. Now I absolutely guarantee that ten years ago, if you'd said we're going to have electric planes mm-hmm. as part of the set of aviation solutions, they would have said, You're mad. <laughs> you're really mad. You yeah. are, aren't you? I yeah. mean, you're not going to get a plane up there on battery-powered Technology, so it's not going to happen. Yeah, it is happening right now. We're mm-hmm. beginning to see the development. of And is that Boeing, Airbus leading that yep, change? absolutely. Yeah, and a lot of it is driven by short haul flights. It's never going to do long haul stuff. No one's yep. going to be up in a electric never plane say for neither, though, long you? haul for quite a while to come. <laughs> but some of the short haul stuff. Yeah, and in a small country like New Zealand, which is a relatively small country, it doesn't yep. have the distances that Australia has. Those short haul flights are an enormous part of the total carbon footprint. So. So Ten will years we ago, see. no one would have said anything about yep. that. Five years ago, probably people said, oh, okay, let's look at the technology. Now it's happening. In five years' time, I don't want to speak for New Zealand because no. I don't know what the commercial reality of this no, is, no. but I would be very surprised if they didn't have something as a prototype to test out and see what it's actually looking like.
0: Well, New Zealand, at least compared to Qantas and other airlines, at least has newer planes, right? They've done an investment strategy, yeah. and that probably affected the environment Bigger footprint thingable. as well. Yeah. The um, Why do you care? (laughs) Like, when when did you start caring? Did you grow up in New Zealand and start caring about these things?
1: Uh, I didn't grow up in New Zealand. I came out to New Zealand when I was 17. And lived in New Zealand for um, two years at that time. Um, And you also came to Australia as well? Yeah, no, and I spent a lot of time in Australia at that time. Yeah. Had a really good time and got to know and love the country. Spent some time here in Sydney about... Six months here in Sydney, and then was off doing s- the usual stuff. Yeah, you know, as uh, as one does. I had what was called an extended gap year, which was actually uh, closer to eighteen months rather than a year. Yeah, um, and spent quite a lot of it here in Australia. So it's a country I've come to love.
0: And were you working or you're traveling? Yeah, I was working. Yeah, and and night in the bush or in an office? I was office? working on
1: sheep station. up okay. At a place called uh, Corindai. Nice. Um. Yep, that was good stuff, <laughs> and uh, learned a lot. Did some time in the uh, you know the usual kind of jobs that people do on these yep. occasions um so it was no it's a really good part of my life and and I've got deep links into New Zealand so the fact that now I can come out twice a year yep. as part of the Air New Zealand advisory board is a, such a privilege
0: and but where did your roots come from in caring about the environment per se and what made you want yeah, to
1: well um I taught in a London school for 10 years yeah um from uh 1974 to 1984. Mm -hmm. And the part of London I was teaching in is a really uh, beaten up bit of London. It's got massive deprivation problems. The quality of the environment is so bad you can hardly believe it. So most of the kids in the school where I was teaching, which was a really wonderful school, by the way, but tough, Yeah. But there was nothing by way of a decent environment for these kids. Uh And I'd had a fantastically privileged um, uh, upbringing and Mm -hmm. and loved that sort of contact with the natural world that I had without thinking about it, to Mm -hmm. be honest. So, I don't know, I just thought this isn't right for these kids, Mm from these estates nearby. So we started a club. I'd been there for a year at the school 75. We started a club taking some of the kids out to... Farms and took them off to Wales to learn about the countryside and learn about that stuff, and that really got me into it very deeply. And then I joined the Green Party in 1974. So I've been a Green Party member for a very long time. (laughs) And you're still part of it. I'm still (laughs) I'm still a member. I and I still support the party. And I will always say if someone says to me, you know, where are your political affiliations? I'm I'm never going to join another party. Well, no. let's be honest, no other political party would have me, so no. that's not the question. But I still feel very loyal to the Green Party, and I look yeah. at the historical contribution that Green Parties the world over have made uh-huh. to our agenda today, and it's massive. It's not really recognized by people, and you know you can't complain about that, but it's been huge in terms of quality of new ideas, new yeah. ways of changing some of these debates. And Do so you
0: think on. these parties like Green Party will ultimately
1: come into you know the leading party in the future years. Well, as you know, we have the Green Party and a new coalition government yep. in uh, New Zealand. Yep. Um, I've really been enjoying that actually, and I had a dinner, as it happens, with the uh, yes, leader of the, uh, the Green Party, James Shaw, who's oh, a yeah. minister in the government, a minister for climate change, yep. uh, and minister for statistics, and associate minister in treasury. I mean, you know, this I is know. the way they yeah, do everything it in, new in New Zealand. Zealand. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and you know, I felt just incredible pride on his behalf and on the green party in new zealand because they have like all minority parties you have yeah. to work and work and work and work yeah. and very often you think this isn't going to go anywhere this is never going to yeah. happen and it does happen because yeah. people recognize quality and they recognize the contribution that green party thinking can add to the well-being of a nation as a whole yeah so to see that coalition in new zealand i tell you is for me after after a very long time it's very special indeed that's great The um, you know, they
0: say fifty percent of the world think the world's going to end, and then fifty percent of the world say technology's going to get better. Okay, you know, aviation and whatnot. What sort of boat are you on? Are you on a bit of both? Or well, you know, and and, you know, I've had a few different podcasts where they say you should just go back, build a permaculture forest on the land, and that should be what we're doing rather than this consumption as citizens rather than consumers. Yeah, yeah, I
1: know know a lot of those. (laughs) uh, I call them civilized survivalists, as in they're not quite like the American survivalist movement, which is not civilized at all. Is this the
0: tiny house movement, sort of?
1: Well, it's basically, everything's going to collapse, so the only thing you need is to build your bunker as far away from any human beings you can and buy a lot of guns and look out for yourself. And And how do you feel about those? I feel completely horrified by that theory of dealing with the world's problems.
0: Do you think it will get to that, though? You don't... don't do you have any opinion on it going forward? Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I mean, from the time I joined the I joined the Green Party in '74 because I read this book called Blueprint for Survival. Okay. Tiny little book, um, 120 pages long, issued by the Ecologist magazine, and it basically laid out all the things that have now unfolded in our lives over yep. the last 50 years. In terms of civilization, Yeah, just great. simply saying that these things are civilization threatening yep. If we don't get on top of them now, yep. they will cause us massive problems down the track, including population growth and so on and so forth. I read that book. I was completely convinced by it. It made such good sense to me yep. on the first sitting that I thought, yeah, bloody hell, okay, so what am I going to do about it? So I joined the Green Party. I joined Friends of the Earth. I got yep. involved in environmental actions. Yep. I stood as a candidate for the Green Party. Because the intellectual case had been made. Mm-hmm. So I've been thinking about whether we're going to get to a better world yep. in time or whether we're going to collapse yep. the civilization that we've developed since the start. of the. Which probably isn't
0: talked made. about in England very often, is it? Collapse. Well, listen, we're collapsing <laughs> our own yep. nation's
1: well-being by our insanity in leaving the European Union. So don't worry, we no. can do it all on our own. We don't, we don't yep. need any help from planetary collapse to yep. destroy the quality of life in the UK. Just on our own, it's fine. Um, But now I've looked at this for a long time, and it worries me that so many people now do think that we are heading inexorably towards this collapse scenario. I don't believe that, personally. But you have to see it as a race. Yeah. And that's what we're in at the moment. And the race is between the speed with which the planet is changing. Mm -hmm. So if you look at accelerating climate change, it is so scary. You can hardly believe how quickly things are getting worse, far worse than the scientists indicated even five years ago. So that's what's happening there. Yep. And then the other half of the race is changes in our mindset, changes in the way we live together, changes in technology, changes in how we organize wealth creation, capitalism. Yeah, And that's what's happening. Yep. The human genius, It is changing. It is changing, yep. but it is not changing as fast. as the planet is changing.
0: And so come 250, where do you think it's gonna be like?
1: I wrote a book called The World We Made, mm-hmm. Um, this now five years ago, in fact. Is there Um, a new one coming or is this? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. uh, uh, Maybe I need to update that one. I did predict that there would be a Republican president in 2015, but not this one. Anyway, so there are all sorts of things I got wrong, as you can imagine. Um,
0: And what things did you get wrong and why did you get them wrong?
1: I think that a lot of it, trying to second guess the politics Mm -hmm. is really difficult, Mm -hmm. um, But trying to look at where the technologies were and indicate how quick, how big a difference that was going to make in our lives. That was a really, for me, a fascinating exercise in research, just to extrapolate out from Mm -hmm. where we were then in 2012 to where we could be by 2020, then 2030, 2050. And, And I've got, you know, I think on the whole, those technology curves have been working out pretty much as the most optimistic Um, enthusiasts for renewables, for instance, or Mm -hmm. storage or electric vehicles, would have indicated back then. When I wrote the book, people said, this is insane. You really don't think the Mm -hmm. world is going to be 100% renewable by 2030. And Mm -hmm. I said, well, actually, probably not 100%. Electricity systems Mm -hmm. could easily get to nearly 100% in almost all big cities around the world and in a lot of rural areas. We've still got to deal with heat, with transport, with land use issues. Mm -hmm. But as in this relatively simple story of decarbonizing electricity systems, it's so much easier than people think. Even here in Australia, and I have to say, of course, you have a particularly stupid approach to developing and designing a different energy system for Australia, but there we go.
0: Are you talking about energy in particular? Because you do have a big focus on energy. I did notice on your blog, like almost out of everything... Energy is what you talk about more than, you right about a lot more than anything else. Well, not quite. <laughs> I think second comes political. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was about to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um,
1: well, that's because I'm a big campaigner for renewables. Uh, yep. I'm a big campaigner against nuclear. Yep. And I'm a big campaigner against fracking. Yeah. So if those are the sort of three things that um, preoccupy my campaigning space, yep. Forum for the Future, my organization, yep. not a campaigning organization, but I do a lot of Which I'd
0: like to work. get into as well. Sure. The, um,
1: I mean, so these things do dominate.
0: Energy almost dominates anything, right? And you've, I don't know, it's kind of died in what I've seen, but peak oil was a big thing, I don't know, five years ago. Yep. Is that? Do you still feel like that's a big thing, or people have kind of gone off of peak oil? I was
1: never entirely... Yeah. It was never part of my advocacy, the peak oil story, because it was clear to me that we were going to have to stop taking hydrocarbons out of the ground and long before they ran out because of the emissions that they caused.
0: I almost sometimes think as well, this is just my opinion, yeah. it's like if I was the oil company, I'd want peak oil to cause scarcity to increase my prices anyway, or have an excuse, right? Yeah, of course. Um,
1: Guess who's really, really <laughs> cross? <laughs> About the fact that America is now, again, a massive producer of oil and gas. The Saudis. Yeah. Why? Because when America was in the doldrums in terms of its own oil and gas production, the Saudis could fix the market. And fracking's themselves.
0: what changed that for America? Fracking is yep. what's
1: changed it in America.
0: Which right? is affecting a lot of people as well, right? In terms of...
1: Yeah, look, I mean, it's... Uh you can see Does why. that
0: stop, though? Does renewables come in and stop that in yeah. the next 20 years? You Absolutely. think so? Because it gets cheaper and more efficient and better? Absolutely. Yep. All the time. Due to technology increases from innovating people or government?
1: Mostly from the private sector. Yeah. And the massive changes that have gone on around renewable energy and storage in particular, and now smart grids, ways mm-hmm. of distributing electricity, these are very much private sector-led Innovation-driven programs. It's a yeah. little bit difficult to draw the line, because in China, of course, although they are all notionally private mm-hmm. sector companies, actually, they just are working to a mandate that the Chinese government gives them. Yeah. So the reason why China has been so dominant in terms of PV uh, photovoltaic cell production is mm-hmm. the Chinese government, uh, 15 years ago or more, simply mm-hmm. said, this is a technology that we are going to drive development in. Yeah. We want to be the biggest the best and the cheapest producer of PV cells in the world. And they are now by a very big margin. But they helped those companies to make those investments, improve quality, get access to export markets, and so on.
0: And so China's actually, in your opinion, or Asia is leading the way in a lot of these different... China things. is
1: in an undisputed leader now on renewable energy. And it may make people a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> we know that... More than a few problems in China, but in terms yeah. of what they've done around this. And you'll see now the same reduction in prices for batteries. Mm-hmm. So prices for batteries, because you can't just do it with renewables. It's got to be renewables plus storage. OK, this is the combination. People don't really get that. It isn't just about the renewable side of it. It's It absolutely has to have the storage bit built into it. And And China is now driving that equally hard.
0: And what you're saying when you say storage is actually from wind power, right? Any renewable source. And not just like a car. It
1: deals with the intermittent (coughs) side of things because when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing, if you've been able to generate and store, you can then sell the stored electricity into the grid at the time that it is most needed or the time where it's most profitable.
0: There is some nuclear that is actually quite efficient, not dangerous coming out though in terms of technology as well. Is that right or no?
1: you want to be a bit more specific? I have heard <laughs> in terms
0: of nuclear, there is different technologies coming out that are unreactive, yeah. but still have the same efficiency. I mean, as this nuclear. To this
1: stuff, honestly, for 50 years yeah that industry, and I they are either some of the most proficient liars in the world, yep. or they have drunk their own nuclear Kool-Aid and they really believe this rubbish. And there's no third option, because these promises have been made for decade after decade after decade. The biggest thing now is having failed with big reactors everywhere. This is a failed story now. Now they're talking about small reactors, what are called small modular reactors, which we've been using, of course, in uh, submarines and uh, fleets of uh, ships for a long time. Um, This is another myth. They'll never get the cost down to the price where they can compete with renewables in the open market. Yeah over the course of the next 15 to 20 years. They'll never get there.
0: And so when it comes to renewable energy, it comes down to the cells which China's developed and the storage.
1: There are a lot of technologies backing this up. I mean, it is good that we're putting more and more emphasis on solar because that is the technology that can make the biggest difference in the poor world as well as the rich world. Wind power is crucial. Bigger and bigger contribution to total electricity supply from wind all over the world, including now... In the u.s massive share yep. of electricity in the u.s but texas is the biggest producer of of wind-powered electricity Crazy, eh? in america i love yeah. that stuff yeah i'm not sure how the texans feel about it but <laughs> no. hey it's good They're China is money. investing massively in wind yeah um and in country after country we're seeing both onshore and offshore the big yep. stuff is the offshore thing you can build huge great turbines and we're now seeing the rollout of the first, and what will be a massively important new technology, which is floating turbines. Yeah. So turbines that don't actually have to be anchored to the sea floor, the ocean yeah. floor. They can just float. They, they can be anchored with long hawsers, essentially, mm-hmm. um, so that it's much more easy to deploy at scale yeah. and at a far cheaper cost. And this increase, this decreases
0: cost of energy gives access to energy to more people and also affects the environment in better ways. Yeah. Which you're also saying, say two-thirds of the world live on, what, less than $2.30 exactly. a day. It gives access to technology or innovation or phones or whatever you want it to be yeah. to people who never used to have it. Yeah. Which ultimately changes Christian. the world.
1: Crucial. Without that, you can't really talk about sustainable economic development for the world's poor. Because
0: energy is actually the it's backbone the of everything. It's the
1: absolute foundation yeah building prosperity in the remotest rural communities in poor cities whatever it might be you have to crack that one first
0: and and that energy gives them and what are the what is the what is it that the
1: energy gives them obviously it gives them light the thing that is most exciting when you look at this and I do I'm a trustee of something called the Ashton Awards which okay. um, provides backing for and gives awards to energy entrepreneurs around cool. the world <coughs> including a lot of Uh, Astonishingly brave entrepreneurs and pioneers in East Africa and India and so on. When I look at these award winners, mostly driven by solar, but some of them with other technologies, for instance, uh, anaerobic digestion or whatever it might be, the benefits are so profound. We take lighting so much for granted. Nobody has any idea of the degree to which lives are transformed Uh just by two hours, three hours of solar-driven lighting in an evening. It's just Utterly transformative in these villages that have never had light. Yep. I look at what happens when you replace very inefficient, dangerous cookstoves yep. that are often using either firewood or kerosene. Uh-huh. Chronic health problems for yep. uh, hundreds of millions of women and children all over the world. And you can, we can move now to a completely different use of, of cookstoves. So all of these technologies are liberatory in the most profound way. It's
0: interesting, isn't it? And it comes from... Um, energy. And it it kind of reminds me of another point, which is they say that when the washing machine and dishwasher came out, it meant women could then go work, right? Which ultimately meant you could grow the economy even more and do even more stuff. Do you agree?
1: (laughs) Well, there is a bit of a problem here, if you're hinting at what is called the rebound effect, which I suspect you might be, as the (laughs) economists call it, which is true, that when you actually enable things to happen with far lower energy usage... Yeah. Or you enable people to do things who didn't have access to energy before. Then yeah. you're going to increase demand yeah. in the economy. And that is a real problem for us. And
0: too. how do you see that moving then beyond the energy?
1: I've got to start from a position of social justice. We're not yeah. going to build a sustainable world for 9 billion people, which is roughly what the f- population will be by 2050, if the if the price of sustainability is continued poverty for most of humankind. It's yeah. not it's not possible. It's not worth it either. It's it's just ridiculous to think that is a solution that's going to work for some of the world's poorest people. So you have to put in this foundation of energy systems that provide basic services for all people on planet Earth. And then on the top of that, you can build all sorts of different improved, efficient ways of creating other services, whether it is to do, for instance, with better food systems, whether it's to do with improved health care, improved education, all of the transport infrastructure. You can do all of that, but not until you've delivered a universal access to energy for all.
0: I love it. It's a great, great manifesto. The um I guess the other thing going beyond this, you know, rebound effect is that you could almost see it in a civilization like Australia and New Zealand or England yep. or America, right? Is you've got a whole bunch of people who don't have to work because of robotics and all sorts of things or they don't have to work so much. Which gives them a lot of extra free time. Which is going to the beach. How do you see that sort of? <laughs> <laughs> How do you in as Australia we, it's going only to the beach? In Australia, yeah, would, yeah. <laughs> would that be seen five as, a, as an upside? Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, well, this is one of these imponderables, frankly, mm-hmm. that could play well in certain instances, could have devastating effects yep. otherwise. And and I'm trying to steer my way through that at the moment because a lot of these sustainability issues. Are dependent upon people having access to good work, having access to socially cohesive communities, being able to find useful ways Mm -hmm. of fulfilling their own potential. You can't this is all part of what sustainable living looks like. You can't remove all of that. And if this new wave of artificial intelligence and machine learning and automation and robots and all the rest of it, that means that progressively we reduce the Employment opportunities, formal and informal, and bit by bit we take people out of these key sectors of the economy. I'm really worried about that. I don't, yeah, it'll be nice to have a bit more time to do the equivalent. We wouldn't go to the beach, obviously, in the UK, but whatever we do. But honestly, that's, that's, uh, I think we're already,
0: we're already at that point, I think, in, uh, you know, millennial generation. We We haven't seen
1: anything yet. Honestly,
0: it's the start. I agree.
1: I promise you, when you really look at this stuff, the potential impact is is completely transformative of labour markets today. So it's, we are beginning to see early signals of that. Um, but when, they are really when I
0: say it's already started, I mean it's that you only have to work nine to five. You get a whole bunch of extra hours off in Australia. That's true. And you get your weekends, and you can go to the beach by five o'clock, which you don't see in actually many countries in the world. You know. And
1: do you think that's part of the reason why Australia is quite complacent about these things?
0: Maybe. Maybe.
1: I mean, it always strikes me. And it's always a bit dodgy getting into another country and starting <laughs> slinging around Are insults you? and criticisms. But it has struck me there. There's a kind of very laid-back story here that this isn't as telling and urgent and precious for us because we've got a fantastic quality of life, got amazing natural resources, we've got a kind of a society that works reasonably well despite having politicians as yep. dysfunctional as politicians in any other mm-hmm. country, so far as I can tell. 24 hours of listening to some of the news about your politicians. Bloody hell. Oh. Um, anyway, sorry, I won't go there. <laughs> yep. um, maybe, though, it's a bit too easy and there is a sense of creeping complacency. And that's, I
0: guess, where I, get, I was getting to. You know, I, I was just talking to Ian um, Pearson, who's from the UK, who's a futuro, futurologist. He used to be with BT. Yeah. Oh, I love Ian. Yeah, and yeah. I, I, do, I do a lot of And optimism. he has a very optimistic view of it. He does. Yep. And his is that we'll be doing, all the kids will start doing entertainment-like podcasts, They'll, you know, be creating things and And how
1: will they earn any money?
0: Or they won't have to earn money because of multiple or they'll be creating things that earn some money via entertainment like projects like a podcast as, in his opinion. Or they'll be uh there'll be a universal income maybe or something by that uh, point.
1: Well now that is a really important yep. policy intervention that, w- that in my opinion will need to happen. Do I you think, think that so. will happen in one no, of these no, countries I really soon? Do. Well we've got no um, the Green Party in the UK has been pushing for universal basic income for the last uh, 30 years. And they're yeah. really keen on this policy. I think now there are something like 20 full-blown experiments going on yeah. with universal basic a income. A little in, ground ones. Yeah, often yeah. Quite starting quite yeah. small, but but really demonstrating what, what it can do. And there are some theories that say start the universal basic income with young people because they're the ones who are going to be most impacted by changes in the labor market. So if you can't afford it for your whole nation... yeah. Maybe build it from the bottom up and C- see what that means for the tax revenues and all the rest of it.
0: There is a very right wing um, uh, philosophy, which is work harder, hard millions on welfare depend on us, right? Which is we can eat KFC all day there there and are watch quite TV.
1: Right wing economists <laughs> that actually really like the universal basic yep. income because they, funnily enough, what they believe is that it would reduce the dependency on a benefit type culture yep. and would liberate a lot of creativity for people who will then be able to make their own. Way in the world without necessarily falling into these dependency traps that we have in in so many of our countries. So it's, it's not quite true to say that the right wing hates the universal basic uh-huh. income. There's a really big debate yeah. amongst right wing economists about whether it would be a good thing or a bad thing. And don't forget, I think it was Milton Friedman who was the original, one of the original... Supporters of, it. of basic
0: income. I, I I do agree that from watching it is, I think it was coming out as just a few YouTube videos, you know, seven years ago. It's totally changed. We almost every Absolutely. fifth person's talking about it or does know about it now, yeah. which is a whole new world in a bunch is of issues. To and so, just to, uh, before we finish off, tell us more about what you're doing, what you want to be doing. You know, Forum for the future yep. is obviously one of your main projects.
1: Yep. So, Forum for the future. Um, I set up with a couple of colleagues of mine back in 1996. Mm-hmm. It, very simple premise: we like to work with organisations that want to accelerate their own change. Yep. So we spend a lot of time working with companies around yep. the world,
0: May, mainly big companies.
1: Mainly startups, big or, companies. Yep. Yep. Because they have the opportunity to influence other companies. One to one million minimum,
0: chain. ten million minimum. We so, don't sort of really. Size? No? Honestly,
1: it's the readiness to change. Yeah. Okay. Like the thing for us, we're a not for profit. Yep. Working with these big companies means we have to be convinced that they're sincere about their readiness to change and they want to make stuff happen quicker rather than not. That's correct. So we have an office in Singapore which does all of our work Mm -hmm. down in this part of the world, in Asia Pacific, an office in New York, office in London, and uh, office in Mumbai for for Mm -hmm. India. So it's been extraordinary to watch how the private sector has responded to these challenges. Yeah. You can probably tell I'm still a campaigner at heart. I'm uh-huh. still a Green Party member. Yeah, I still have very radical beliefs about yep. the need to transform capitalism uh-huh. into something which would probably be unrecognizable for large numbers of people enjoying the capitalist system today. Yep. But in reality, if we don't work with large companies today and harness their energy yep. and their creativity to this massive society-wide, civilization-wide transformation, what are we going to do? Are we going to just expect them to fall into line at the end of the day because governments tell them? Do you feel
0: like China is actually a
1: good model? China is... No, (laughs) I don't think China is a good model. Um, (laughs) I still want to have sustainability and democracy. For me, these two things are... Pretty much uh, critical bedfellows. And China is an astonishing country to look at in terms of driving sustainability because they don't mess around. They're not like we are. Uh They don't have all these kind of built-in delay factors and endless political procrastination. If China, China 15 years ago decided it wanted to have more electric vehicles on its roads by 2020 than any other country in the world. It could. Guess which country is going to have more electric vehicles on its roads than any other country in the world? China. Because they basically say to the car companies, the car manufacturers, here's the deal. If you want to sell cars in China, (laughs) you're going to have to sell X percent. I can't remember what the percentage is that are electric vehicles. So find out how to get the price point right. Find out how to do the mass manufacturing and make your proposition to people in China.
0: Which is pretty amazing at some point as well, regardless of what sort of democracy or anything it is in there. But (laughs) yeah, we've got to
1: have better models than that because we, you know, I'm very conscious that although it's painstakingly difficult and frustrating to work these things through Mm -hmm. democracies where everything is kind of stuck in a bit of an impasse at the moment, and not many mainstream politicians honestly understand the Uh scale of the challenge. It's not just climate. It's this whole story about collapsing natural systems, levels of pollution that are extraordinarily high, really dreadful social problems driven by poor diets. You look at the increased Uh, obesity and diabetes. I mean, it's staggering. And we just sit and look at it. Oh, okay, so 50% of the world's going to be obese by 20, whatever it is. And you think, is that quite where human civilization should go? So we've got this lack of political will Yep. To seize hold of these things and really say, these are the challenges of our time. And just like people in previous periods of history had to rise to the challenge of the time, whatever it might be, whether it yep. was war or mm-hmm. the Cold War, whatever, we have now got to have that scale of response across the board. And we simply don't have it. So people are entitled to be really frustrated at poor political leadership.
0: Unless they're in such a Huxleyan view of the world, you know, where you it yeah. is nice to consume KFC every day, watch TV and Netflix and go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite interesting, hard. Interesting mates, Ryan, yeah. <laughs> it's quite hard to change at that point, you know what I mean? Look, this um, isn't gonna
1: this isn't gonna excite <laughs> the whole population of any country. Yep. As you say, there are gonna be a lot of people who will say, Really? That we don't need to do that or I don't give a and shit so, about this. so, what are
0: you working on specifically? you got in New Zealand. You're, ha, are you involved in Foreign for the Future? Yeah, no, I'm for, still very involved in yeah.
1: that. I still work for the forum four days a week. So, yeah. that's my okay. main job. I'm okay, cool. here in Australia for that. I'm also in Melbourne uh, next week. Teaching and are they going to set up an
0: Australian office
1: for this? Well, we yep. are now. We've got more and more work in New Zealand, which is brilliant. We're yep. doing a lot of stuff there. And
0: um, so, these companies for Foreign of the Future, t- in New Zealand's yeah. obviously one of these companies. Yeah. Yep. What? How does Forum for the Future work with them? Just we give have, me kind of a case study.
1: So we have a partnership with each of these big companies. Yep. What we do is design how we can most help them in yep. terms of uh, advice on strategy, yep. advice on procurement, yep. supply chain, consumer engagement, a whole host of investment stuff. So yep. we're not really environmentalists in no. the classic sense of the term. We're, yep. we're sustainability strategic advisors. So we yep. talk a lot about society, about employees, about communities, about yep. stakeholders. Talk about a, a, a economics. How do mm-hmm. you drive future profit flows yep. and do it in a way that is more rather than less sustainable? So we are very much involved at the strategic level uh-huh. with all of the companies that we have as partners. That's great. Yeah, it's good. And it's exciting work. I'm, I've got no illusions. That's not. It's not going to change the world on its uh-huh. own. But for me, it's a Pretty important part of it, but I've also got this b- different bit of me that says you can't do without the politics. That's why I still continue to campaign around. I these other politicians,
0: politicians. Are you a fan of them? Al Gore. Al,
1: Al Gore's been amazing. You yep. have to take your hat off to him. I mean, that yep. guy hasn't stopped <laughs> from the time where he's you know first started worrying about climate change and the inconvenient truth. He's at yep. it every day. Uh, honestly, he is amazing. I was slightly disappointed by his second film. It didn't really. Take the thing into the place that we need and, and actually what frustrated me was The Inconvenient Truth was an amazing film. But from that point on, he promised that his next film yeah. would be about all the solutions to these problems. Not about the problems, yeah. but about all the solutions. And his next film wasn't about that. So we've never had, not from Al Gore, not from Leonardo DiCaprio, not from any of these great... It's all about the problem. It's all about the bloody problem. Yeah. And what people really want is something that just says, Gives me oh, the solution. Well, what can I okay. do? You mean, <laughs> we can have that and have a high quality of life yeah. and get to the beach by five o'clock? Yeah. All that kind of stuff? Yeah. And this we can do by deploying capital yeah. differently in the economy, by promoting technology, yeah. by enabling people to le- lead more responsible lives, all of these things.
0: Well, I think it... The issue is right. It's like what Steve Jobs said: "Is you, you know, he, you know, it's when he went into the. He used to think the networks conspired against us and made us dumb, and then he realised they they're just giving people what they want, which is a far <laughs> more depressing thought. And so yes, exactly. And that's what Leonardo and everyone probably fall into: is people just want the world to be bad because that's your tribal group. Um,
1: but look, you have to step back a moment. When you say people want that, don't forget we are all. Now, the victims of or the, the, res, the recipients of 50 years of highly sophisticated advertising and marketing campaigns mm-hmm. paid for with countless trillions of dollars of mm-hmm. highly sophisticated um, ways of reaching into our brains and our minds and all the rest yeah. of it. And we have all been affected, I would say infected, yeah. by that consumerist uh, approach to what life is about. That is not a given for all time. It does not mean to say that is always going to be what humankind thinks as the acme of what it is to lead a good life on planet yep. Earth. And there are, there are so many, countless millions of people who don't subscribe to that no. kind of well, or Recently, table. at
0: least, with the influx of you know YouTube Vice and these other Yeah, no, it's, really, right?
1: it's looking different. And for young people, I don't want to overdo the millennial story, but they're no. a pretty critical ingredient in this. Yep. For young people, they look at some of the worst aspects of that market, market-led, consumption-led, way of life and they think that doesn't seem to give us what we're really wanting. Where is the meaning in that? Where's the purpose? Where's yep. the sense of what we're here on the planet to do something for? What you know, how does all that come together for us as individuals? So I'm putting a lot of confidence yep. and faith in optimism. In, in and and <laughs> hope, actually. I call yep. it hope rather than optimism, okay. okay. In hopefully I doubt that's it issue. does. Whereas optimism <laughs> is a little bit febrile. Um, the, in How we are now beginning to distance ourselves from that pattern of economic growth, consumption-driven growth that has dominated our lives for the last 50 years. And I watch how many, many young people are now rethinking that. They don't necessarily want to give Give all that up. No, that's not the (laughs) deal. They're not going to go and live amazingly ascetic lives of no consumption. But they want it done differently. And they want it done with a far lower impact on other people on the planet and on future generations. And that stuff is now, when you look at that upsurge in millennial thinking about this and action, yep. you've got to be inspired by that.
0: I love it. Just to finish this off, because we are getting on time, we, what do you think the biggest breakthroughs are, that are going to happen that these millennials, you might say, are going to demand?
1: I think that the one that really interests me, we've talked a lot about energy, yep. the one that really interests me is pe- how people are rethinking the food economy yeah because oddly enough it's quite easy to do all the renewable energy stuff i know people think i've gone mad but it yeah, really yeah. is quite easy whereas changing land use patterns for seven billion people today nine yeah. billion by 2050 and producing the food that we need yeah. to provide sustainable nutrition for that number of people that is a far bigger challenge and what I love about what's happening with young people now is they're just not taking any of that for granted at all. No. Just because people have always put meat at the center of their diet, more and more young people are saying, really? Why?
0: It's how interesting. It must be a problem for the food pyramid in America when you think about it. <laughs> Seriously. You know, where that's worked for so many years Seriously. and now these... And now, we're watching,
1: We Forum for the Future does a huge amount of work on what we call sustainable proteins. So how yep. do you move away from animal-based so proteins? So do
0: you believe these cell-based meats... I absolutely
1: believe that those alternative artificial meats are going to dominate more and more of the marketplace. Plant-based proteins of different kinds will take a bigger and bigger share of that part of the... Hemp, have you read
0: into hemp? Yep, a lot of people yep, are saying that's yep. a big... Uh,
1: look, the innovation story here is amazing.
0: And do you invest in these things yourself? Do you have a farm? Or? I wish I
1: could. <laughs> I, I would. I do dream about that. Actually, yeah. I have a rather more modest dream. Is when I have a bit more time in my life, I might learn how to bake bread. That would be a yeah. good start for me, uh-huh. get my hands on something practical. But I've, I did spend a lot of my youth planting trees and working on the land in that way, and I missed that. I yeah. missed that practical connection with the land. I now do that by walking and yeah, sort of being out in the natural world, but actually growing stuff. You know, when I was a teacher, one of the things that we did is a very small thing, but it really mattered was we found ways of helping a lot of those kids to learn how to grow a bit of food themselves. I love it. And it's, you know, you've got to start there. You got to start yeah. with a love of what it is that we need in our lives and Food is right up there for young people today,
0: and it's what connects everyone at the end of the day, anyway, isn't it? Yeah. Well, thanks, Jonathan. I really appreciate it. And um, where can we find you? You write a blog weekly.
1: I no, not weekly. Every now and then, I have (laughs) I watch my rage level rise about something, and then when it tips over a certain i get my pen out and write actually
0: it is something i just before we finish is i, I know one of your last blogs it was about women in construction
1: yeah which actually when
0: i went and googled it it was 2005 was a lot of the articles that came up about women in uk 99 percent was women awesome. but in australia there is a lot of women in full-on construction i don't know if you notice it but well interestingly i've yep. got um,
1: tomorrow yeah spending some time with two big Sydney developers with Lendlease yeah. and with Mervac. Yeah. And one of the things I want to talk to them about is what they've done to encourage a much higher percentage of women in construction here than in the UK, where we are we are so bad, it is really embarrassing.
0: Well, I'm going to give my opinion. I think it is someone holding the lollipop gets paid 150 K and she gets to stand outside all day versus <laughs> paid forty K or something somewhere else in another country. And I'd say a lot of them are also just
1: tell me what this role is holding the lollipop. You mean directing directing traffic the traffic lollipop around a construction site. Yeah.
0: yeah, which is classified as a very dangerous job, it right? Is a because um job. No, you're right, most people hate stopping. Yeah. <laughs> and so apparently they're ending up to hundred and fifty K just doing that, right? Because of unions in Australia. And a lot of them are internationals who come here and save up the money by doing these jobs.
1: Interesting. That's, okay. that's
0: what I've heard.
1: Well, construction is is an industry that is changing rapidly. Technology yep. is transforming things. More and more stuff will be built off-site in, in factories, in fact, in manufacturing yep. facilities, and then assembled on-site. It's much more using digital technology, design technology, quality environments. Women find it much more congenial now to work in conditions like that. It's the on-site, on the construction site itself yep. that still remains a bastion of really disgusting sexism and attitudes towards women that are just honestly hateful. I'd be interested
0: and to actually get the data back on how those women are treated on the workplace. not good. No. tell you, it is not good. Even I, in Australia? I don't know. Oh, no, I, yeah, I yeah.
1: I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'm not competent to judge that. But it's, and of course, for the, then you think about young women thinking about what kind of careers they want to do and they think yep. about well, we, I'd have to put up with that level of yep. of sort of constant intimidation and hectoring and sexism and harassment and so on. And I think there have got to be better ways of earning money. Well, the
0: perhaps. thing is, is it's no different to the corporate world still today, which is changing very quickly.
1: I think construction's a laggard industry when it comes to you. attitudes to women. Absolutely. Yep. No, we don't. I I would say it's amongst the worst in the UK. And many industries have moved very significantly on eliminating... A lot of that sexist behavior, I'm not saying, yeah. we've got there yet. It's still a work environment a work culture. do you is.
0: think a more educated, civilized in an English manner people or you know humans would uh change that? Do you think it's just like it's a less educated um segment of the population ends up doing that work? And maybe robots take that over, so it's not even oh, an yeah, issue in 10 years' times as really well, right? It's tough yeah. work. I mean, let's be yeah. honest.
1: I've been on a lot of building sites, and you think to yourself, bloody yeah. hell. Oh, I walk past it every yeah, day, and I'm I appreciate yeah, I'm no, not serious, doing that right now. serious, yeah hard work. So I'm not taking anything away from that. Yeah. It's p- possible to do that work, take huge pride in that work, and still make it an environment that is good for women as well as for men. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> it's perfectly possible. Yeah. So we need to work towards that, to be honest. Yeah. At the heart of it, let's be honest about this, Ryan. One of the reasons why the world is in such a parlous position now is men. Yeah. I'm sorry to have to bring it down. White men. White men in particular. Yeah. But Yeah, men and you know. G- yeah. It's true to say that an awful lot of men now who are not white are pretty yeah. s- quickly catching up on some of the attitudes that were first <laughs> shaped by white men. Yeah. And I still feel really strongly about this. We've just got a whole set of attitudes towards Women towards families, towards communities, towards the natural world, towards other creatures. You know, how many men do you hear really talking about the insufferable cruelty inflicted on billions of farm animals? Day after day after day, it's just inconceivable that we put up with this cruelty. So men have got to commit to really dramatic changes in the way they see the world and their responsibility.
0: And I think it is. I think the menamorphosis or whatever you want to call it is happening environmentally for men um and absolutely and, and there's uh, a lot of it probably comes down the fear it's like once you're weinstein and you're on the tv they're thinking i don't ever want to be like that so the fear takes over at some point as well you know what i mean
1: and i need to watch what i say i think it's fair to say that Harvard weinstein is a role model for literally not one person on planet earth <laughs> these days oh well maybe i shouldn't say that if you think about the man in the white house but hey. yeah we'll we'll leave it there thanks (laughs) jonathan
0: (laughs) um i appreciate it and um i look forward to hopefully we'll have you back on again soon when laura's back great thanks john good i'll cheers for that yeah it's
1: a pleasure